How glorious it is that we have been able to come together, having been so richly blessed this afternoon, that things are as well with us in both physical and dispositional ways to allow us to come together tonight. Indeed, as we consider our lengthy sick list, we nonetheless can celebrate the fact that some have improved and are able to be back with us and look forward to the time that many others can also be similarly described. As we have come to this portion of our worship service this evening, I would ask that you turn your attention to the closing chapter of the Philippian letter of the New Testament. As we read the eighth verse of that chapter, the one to which we turned our attention a few moments ago, we notice that the essence related to thinking about something. That is to say, what is it that we allow our mind to dwell upon? What is it that we utilize to fill our thoughts and to accumulate in our mind and allow us to think upon those matters? Over the next few moments tonight, I'd ask you ponder with me how we each spend our time in thought. No doubt, God here will in fact step on some of our toes as he challenges us to turn our mind to that which he deems wholesome, noble, worthy, and good. And so often the world, of course, presents a very different saga, a very different set of circumstances. By way of introduction this evening, as we think about how we might well begin this lesson, could you ponder with me at least briefly what we saw this morning, in which we asked the question, what time is it? And we found the answer buried in the 10th chapter of the book of Hosea in the Old Testament. It's time to seek the Lord. May I submit to you that though the very answer to that question demands that we take action in some way, to seek the Lord doesn't happen by accident. Satan would never permit that to occur. It takes determination, dedication, and devoted service on our part with clear intent in order for that to take place. This evening, the first element in the accomplishing of that starts inside ourselves. What about my mind and yours? Unless our mind thinks upon that which is appropriate and in accordance to God, our words and our actions will never follow suit in that way that he finds pleasing. But if, on the other hand, our mind is filled with those things that are godly and pious and righteous, that which God declares we should think on, Perhaps it isn't so unusual to expect that our words and our actions will similarly follow and will also be pleasing unto God. And hence tonight, what should we be thinking about? What should we utilize to dwell upon? As we noticed in Philippians 4 verse 8, there are several things that are listed, and to them we shall turn our attention in due time. But there's an element we should settle first. Notice to think on these things might we suggest that it seems as though the heart is being discussed here. The Bible heart. Isn't it true that when you and I think about the heart, at least in our modern 21st century day, it relates to that organ in the chest that is the matter that pumps the blood throughout our body. But notice in the Holy Scriptures, the heart is not utilized in that fashion. The biblical heart is that seat of intelligence. It is, if you will, the intellect of man. It's the center of reasoning, that place where thinking takes place. And hence tonight, when we read about the capabilities of the heart and how that, that should be in tune with God, we're speaking about matters discussed in texts like these. In 1 Kings 3 verse 12, when Solomon was told by God, Ask anything you like and I'll grant it to you, Solomon. Solomon asked for a wise and understanding heart. Notice he wasn't referring to that organ in his chest that pumped the blood throughout his body. 
And interestingly, in verse 12, God specifically told him, I will grant thee a wise and understanding heart. We read in Psalm 19, verse 14, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. The heart is capable of meditation, thoughtful disposition and careful analysis, and that which reaches conclusions. In Psalm 49, verse 3, The meditations of my heart shall be of understanding. The heart's capable of two things, meditation and understanding. Those verses alone are enough to help us understand that this matter of the heart in the Bible, that matter with which we can think, is that matter that is of such great significance. Furthermore, let us use perhaps finally in that way the words of our Savior Himself. In the 13th chapter of Matthew, Jesus on that occasion speaking about characteristics of parables, why it was he taught in parables, on one occasion said, their eyes they've closed, their ears they have made dull, lest they should hear with their ears, see with their eyes, and understand with their hearts. The heart is capable of understanding. And hence, would you note with me with that thought in mind, two statements from Solomon in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 4.23, Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. We are directly commanded to keep our heart. That word keep means to carefully guard, to watch closely, to ensure that it meditates upon that which is right and good. And notice Proverbs 23 verse 7, For as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. What you and I dwell upon and think about will cause us to become that on which we think. As you think in your heart, so are you. It's no wonder then we're urged and admonished so carefully to guard what we think about, what we allow our minds to dwell upon. That, of course, is the centerpiece of our lesson this evening. What should you and I be thinking about? If we are to closely keep our heart, to guard it with care, so that those things that are stored therein are pleasing and acceptable, what things should we allow ourselves to think about? With those matters in mind, let us race to Philippians 4 verse 8 and use the remainder of our lesson this evening to look more carefully at those matters listed in that text. Philippians, the fourth chapter, verse number 8. What do you and what do I think about? Now, only you and I personally can answer that question. Quite likely, even your spouse will not be able to fully address and answer that question. But you and I know, do we allow our mind to dwell upon that which is noble, or do we from time to time allow it in carelessness to ponder and dwell upon that which is of no good? Let us perhaps address that in the context of our reading again. Philippians, the fourth chapter, verse number 8. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, and if there be any praise, think on these things. At this very point, it might already be appropriate to notice that the last four words of the verse, think on these things, in the Greek, that's a direct commandment. It is not left as an option to us. We should thus with great anxiousness and with great power strive so to cause our life to be where we think 
on these six items as they're listed for us in this text. Let us begin to look at them then one by one. The first thing that Paul lists, finally, brethren, you'll notice the word finally draws us to the conclusion of the book of Philippians. Not many verses remain, and one of the final thoughts that Paul wished to share with those brethren in Philippi, that dear church that was so kind to him, had to do with what they thought about. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true. Isn't it an amazing thought that that idea of trueness is just as relevant and just as pertinent to you and me today as it was now 20 centuries ago? We might be so tempted to think the world has changed so much in 2,000 years. But they were just as much in need of pondering that which is true as you and I are today. It goes without saying that when one discusses that which is true, we immediately should strive to identify what is being discussed. What is that which is true? First of all, notice the very next verse, if you would, Philippians 4 verse 9. On that occasion we read those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do, and the God of peace shall be with you. First, notice that they were admonished to think about various things, and then he said, what you've seen, received, heard, and witnessed in me, those matters you ought to strive to imitate. We might well consider then that as Paul set before them a Christian example, that involved that which was true. We each have an idea of what it means to describe something as true. That means it isn't false. That means it is not of pure speculation. That means it is not opinion. That means it is not, if you will, of careless disposal. It is that which is not false. It is true. Paul admonishes them to ponder, to think on that which is true. Consider some definitions or identifications of what is true. In 1 Kings 17, 24, the last verse of that noble chapter in the Old Testament, that interesting woman told Elijah on that occasion, the word in thy mouth is truth. What Elijah had spoken to her was cataloged as truth, and she understood that fact. As we come later to appreciate trueness, we might well consider the 119th Psalm, that longest of the chapters in the Old Testament, identifies in verse 160 the following idea. Thy word is true from the beginning, and every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. David, what is it then that in your estimation and by your inspired nature is true? It is the word of God. Jesus amplified these thoughts in John 17, did he not? Sanctify them in truth, thy word is truth, John 17, verse 17. Thus, one of the first elements that you and I can consider as we allow our mind to dwell upon things is there should be a certain and notable section of the Word of God involved and of course all that the Word of God upholds. That is what we should allow our mind to be filled with. Things directly in God's Word or things which God's Word defends, supports, and upholds. When we consider the element of truthfulness and quite often the lack thereof in our world, isn't it safe to say that if we would follow that, and if mankind at large would follow it, it would do away with false doctrine. It would be exceedingly difficult to gain an audience in false teaching if folks would dwell in their mind on what is true. Not that which is drawn by speculation, not human fancy or that is of opinion, truthfulness. 
may we appreciate then carefully that Paul's opening comment not only has to do with religious considerations, but even in other aspects of our life. So often, it's easy to be led astray by, again, what someone, perhaps eloquently, is able to state. When, after all, what they purport to say is not true. It's merely stated with a sense and air of confidence when, in fact, it isn't true at all. We should rest in our mind on that which is true. How much time is wasted in our world as the brains of noble men and women churn on things that are not true and therefore, by and large, are useless? Oh, how much brain power we waste. If only we'd ponder and allow ourselves to dwell upon what's true. Perhaps one final thing we can state is that when speculation and vain jangling and talking is allowed to occupy one's attention, one falls under the direct condemnation of 1 Timothy 1 verse 6, as well as 1 Timothy 6 verse 20, where we're there told that we ought not to follow the oppositions of science falsely so-called and to ponder over these useless questions that do nothing but minister contention. Oh, how we should dwell upon what's true. Perhaps in that light, we can close that consideration by saying this. If Solomon's statement in Proverbs 23, 7 is true, and certainly it is, that as a man thinketh in his heart so easy, what if you and I think then far too much on that which is not true? Doesn't that then make us a person who is not true? The answer, in fact, speaks for itself, doesn't it? What next does Paul say we should think about? In addition to that which is true, he next addresses that which is honest. H-O-N-E-S-T, that which is honest. It is, however, exceedingly interesting to note that that Greek word that appears here is not the word honest as you and I have come to know it. That word that appears here from the Greek is actually a word that means honorable, respectable, venerable, that which is of good character. And hence, that's a bit different than what you and I consider to be the typical usage of the word honest. Thus, if you're of the habit of making notes in your Bible and you use the King James translation, you might write the word honorable out there beside that word. And in fact, the American Standard has actually rendered that word honorable. Think on things that are honorable. That too is a very powerful idea. It goes without saying that those that are interested in doing the will of God do not allow their mind to rest on that which is vulgar and profane and filthy. That's obviously a sin. But notice that Paul's usage of this word lifts those considerations to a higher plane. Not only must we not allow our mind to dwell upon the vulgar, the filthy, and the profane, and the forward, we must positively seek to allow our mind to dwell upon that which is honorable that which is not questionable, that which is of good character, that which is of high esteem. It's interesting to notice, isn't it, that doesn't that indicate our mind not only should not be in the gutter, but it shouldn't even be anywhere close to it. Perhaps in life we are aware of individuals who like to try to walk as close to the fence with Satan as they can get. They're not comfortable remaining far into the field with Christ. They want to have a hand with Christ and a hand with the devil at the same time. But Paul forever said you cannot have fellowship with both at the same time. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We learn also here that impacts our mind. 
the positive seeking of our mind to dwell upon that which is honorable and of high character in consideration of those facts. Notice that this is a requirement for the deacon exactly. The same word that appears here is listed amongst the requirements for the deacon in 1 Timothy 3.8. There, the word though is translated grave in the King James. That is to say, a man that is a deacon should have a mind that dwells upon what is honorable. And he should be a person of honor and a person of nobility and a person, you see, of good character. Notice, though, here, this applies to each of us, this text in Philippians. All of us, not just a deacon or not just an elder, should strive to have a pure mind, one that is, in fact, wholesome and sound, one that dwells upon what's honorable. And is it not fair to say, in regard to that thought, that society is so profound at doing just the opposite? Society can take a scene or an incident that by itself is not at all dirty, and yet quite often the mind of some that are less disposed to honor will take and twist and rest that into something ugly, thinking it's funny, perhaps cute, to draw a smile or a laugh or perhaps a jovial festival among a group of people. But notice, we are to be people who dwell with an honorable mind. Clean jokes are a wonderful thing, but those that are filthy are, of course, condemned. And we see here, what about those that are even questionable? Should our mind dwell upon those things? It would appear not. But what's more, as we come to the very last element, could we not again make the statement, if a person is as he thinks, what does that say about you and me if we allow our mind to dwell upon that which is not honorable? That would make us less than honorable, wouldn't it? What's the third element that Paul listed? In addition to that which is true and that which is honest, he also listed for you and me to think upon that which is just. That which is just. The Greek word, again, it would be helpful for us to note the significance of its definition. That Greek word means right, righteous, or in accordance to divine law. That is to say, you are to think upon, Paul told the Philippians, that which is in accordance to divine law, that which is righteous. We see an interesting interplay between this and the two that have preceded it, that which is honorable and that, of course, which is true. God's Word is true. This, however, takes it just a step further, doesn't it? To contemplate and to dwell upon that which is just. You and I appreciate the fact that the human mind, the human brain, is incredibly powerful. It is, by far, the most complicated and complex organ in our body. It is capable of so, so very many things. As one considers this, Paul says, think on that which is just, that which is in accordance to divine will. Think with me just a moment about the sheer volume of information with which you and I are presented on seemingly a momentary or at least a daily basis by virtue of radio and television, telephones and cell phones and internet. It certainly is the case that in and of themselves, none of these things is evil. None of them are then in and of themselves a condemned matter. But what does it say if we are not of those who allow time to dwell upon that which is just? If we feel the concourse of our day with these other issues, our jobs, our recreation, the other matters involving computers and television and radio. 
if we aren't careful, we can allow these things, though they themselves aren't evil, to consume so much of our time that we basically give God none. What does it say about you and me if we perhaps pursue these other things seven or eight hours a day, televisions, radio, computers, and internet, and give God's Word five minutes, or give God's Word ten minutes? Does that seem like a fair trade? Does it seem like a fair matter when we're supposed to think upon that which is just? You see, the computer and the radio, at least in most every instance, does not present that which is just. It's human fancy, and it's human speculation. Perhaps we should then appreciate that we, as the servants of God, should reasonably restrict ourselves and make certain to give God enough time to incorporate His Word into our heart so that we think on that which is just more than just a moment or two a day. Maybe we should turn that TV off. Maybe we should shut down that computer. Maybe we should turn off the cell phone for a while and dwell upon the Word of God and allow that which is just to fill our heart and mind so that we can become more godly in disposition and more a person of power in His Word. Certainly those thoughts are sobering for us, aren't they? as we are challenged day by day to make those decisions that would best be in our interest to serve the God of heaven. It seems that Martha and Mary found themselves in at least a similar situation to this, by way of principle at least. You remember the scene rather well with me. Jesus came to the house of Martha, and the text says she was cumbered about with much serving. Martha had a desire to be a good hostess. She wanted to have plenty of food available and all things to be well prepared and ready. But there was one problem, at least in her mind. Mar Mary was not helping her. Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to him teach. Martha approached the Savior and said, Lord, dost thou not care that my sister will not help me? Jesus responded, Martha, Martha, thou art careful and troubled about many things. Mary hath chosen that good part which shall not be taken away from her. Notice Jesus didn't say that Mary was in the wrong for desiring to be, or Martha was in the wrong for desiring to be a good hostess. There's nothing improper about that. But at, the, at that occasion and on that moment, who had made the better choice? Was it Martha in devoting her time to the pursuit of service? Or was it Mary sitting at the feet of the Master being schooled in those matters of eternal truth? It was the latter, for Jesus said so. Perhaps you and I, again, when we are given those choices to make, must again turn off these things that cloud our mind quite often with worldly matters and pursue like Mary to sit at the feet of the Master. Again, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. In the fourth place, Jesus also told us in the Scriptures, and Paul affirmed it yet again here, the necessity of thinking on that which is pure to think on that which is pure. The Greek word means innocent, chaste, that which is holy. We see that again we should give our attention to ponder and to dwell upon that which is pure. Maybe immediately our mind rushes to one of the statements Jesus made in the Beatitudes, Blessed are they that are pure in heart, for they shall see God. Is it not the desire of all of us to see God someday? to rest in the sublime presence of the august nature of God for eternity. Jesus said, The pure in heart are the ones that shall be blessed in that way. You and I need then to dwell and to think upon that which is pure. 
Isn't the idea of purity a wonderful thing? To contemplate, say, a baby that's born into this world, absolutely spotless in every way. No sin, no blemish, no spot in any fashion, absolutely morally and ethically pure. The only way that you and I as adults can ever reattain that status is by virtue of the cleansing nature of the blood of Christ. When He washes sin from our life, we rise from that watery grave of baptism clean. In fact, we're described as those that are white as snow, robed in those garments that are so blessedly white in Revelation 7, 14. It's a fair thing to say that we then should strive to think on that which is pure. I've listed some considerations for your thinking. Immediately what comes to mind, it seems, is how difficult that chore is. None of us would say it's easy to dwell upon what's pure. Even a meager shopping trip to Walmart here in Cookville. As you walk through the store, it's quite likely you're going to see folks that are immodestly dressed. It's not at all unusual to see booklets and pamphlets as you walk through the checkout aisle that show half-naked ladies, perhaps even more than half. Perhaps you're willing to see or will see things that are shown that are absolutely not true. You see, it's difficult at times to maintain a high degree of purity, but we must. We must not simply throw up our hands and say it's impossible. Paul commanded it, and he would not have done so if it was impossible. Remember that in that first century era, Corinth was a licentious, wicked, and ungodly city, and yet to them Paul established a church there, a congregation of the Lord's people. Admittedly, they had problems. But nonetheless, in the second Corinthian letter, Paul highly complimented them and highly commended them in chapter 7 because they had turned their attention toward a proper disposition of purity. May we also appreciate that it's possible in our day. When we turn on the television, is it not usually the case that we're more likely to see that which is impure than that which is pure? Daytime television is awful. Nighttime, primetime television, at least on the major networks, is atrocious. To say it's impure is an understatement. Why is it that way? Because that's what society wants to see. But that doesn't mean that we have to watch it. We can find wholesome television, or we can turn it off altogether. We are not those that are servants to impurity. We are told by Paul, think on that which is pure. Throughout the character of the New Testament, we are in fact told by Paul in 2 Corinthians 10 verses 5 and 6 the fact that we are to bring every thought into captivity into the obedience of Christ. Again, that cannot be impossible for if it were, God would never have allowed it in his book. It is possible for you and me to capture every thought and to bring it into proper compliance and proper obedience to the nature of Jesus Christ. That is a high standard for you and me to live to, isn't it? But oh, what a rich life it will produce. A life that is based on the solid, most solid of all foundations and a life with all the promise of here and hereafter easily to be found within it. Think on that which is pure. Yet again, the words of Solomon in Proverbs 23, 7, as a man thinketh in his heart so easy, if you and I then dwell on what is impure, doesn't that make us impure? Doesn't it make us as a person less than the pure standard that God desires? Again, that answer speaks for itself. In the fifth place, not only that which is true and that which is honest and that which is just and that which is pure, 
We next notice that which is lovely. That which is lovely. You and I are commanded, urged, encouraged to think on what is lovely. That word lovely that's translated and it appears here means agreeable. It means pleasing or it means amiable. That is to say, again, that is a word that probably means a bit different than what we originally expected. We think of a beautiful rose as being lovely. And we may think of other scintillatingly powerful things as lovely. That's not what the word means. It means agreeable or pleasing or amiable. You and I then are urged here to think upon that which is the opposite of contention, the opposite of disagreeableness, the opposite of that which is quarreling, and that which is, again, the lack of intention. It seems as though the element of peacefulness is involved, doesn't it? Throughout the Old Testament and the New as well, we are urged to estimate and to pursue peacefulness. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Psalm 133 verse 1. The admonition to unity not only in the church, but is it not also seen in the family, in the community? We each know what a difficult matter it can be when unity is not present, when there is strife and infighting, when there is quarreling or other things. In a church, that's almost devastating. In a community, it's hurtful. In a nation, it's so terribly difficult. Here we see we're urged to ponder what is pleasing, what's amiable, what is in fact just the opposite of contention. In fact, that word amiable may be a bit unfamiliar to some of us. Note the definition that I've tried to present to you. The word amiable just simply means having the disposition to please. In the 84th Psalm, we see that that word is used to describe the disposition of those who in fact are pleasing in the sight of God. They're amiable, for God is amiable. Is it not interesting to consider how peaceful it is when the mind dwells upon those things? In fact, one of the passages I listed for your study is found in this same book of Philippians. In the opening verses of chapter 4, Paul mentions two ladies, one whose name was Euodia and one whose name was Syntyche. They seem to have a contention. They seem to have a difficulty getting along. Notice that two chapters earlier, in Philippians 2 verse 3, Paul said, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. Paul, how much then should be done through strife? Nothing. How much should be done from the attitude or disposition of vainglory and pride and arrogance? Nothing. As Christians, we then should strive in lowliness of mind to esteem others better than ourselves and to seek in our mind that which is lovely. That is to say, that which is pleasing or that which is agreeable. In the church, how thankful we can be for men such as elders who pursue peacefulness and help maintain it amongst the congregation. What a blessing indeed that is. As you and I then individually seek to pursue that which is amiable in our lives, that which is lovely, oh, what a blessing we shall be to ourselves, our families, the other acquaintances that we know. Maybe one final thought, though, would be this. It would be a severe disservice to use this to teach that we must then be in fellowship with those who are a false doctrine. Paul doesn't mean here to think and to welcome all simply in the attitude of agreeableness. That would make this text contradict others. 
We must appreciate, we must identify and not pursue false doctrine wherever it may be and to not approve of it in the life of others even. What Paul meant here was in that life of me and you to pursue that which is of peacefulness when conditions permit it and if that is the choice that is given to us to make. Might we say that there is one more for us to consider. Paul also stated that you and I should think upon things that are of good report. Things that are of good report. If there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. What does it mean to describe something as being of good report? Again, somewhat of interest, there is but one Greek word appearing here, not two. The words good report look like two words, but notice that one Greek word simply means commendable or praiseworthy. Think on that which is worthy of praise. We should not then allow the excessive or majority of our time to dwell upon what is not worthy of praise, for likely then it's either not pure, it's not true, it's not just, it's not lovely. There's something about it that is opposed to the teachings of the Word of God but rather when we ponder that which is worthy of praise, that which is commended in the eyes of God, that which meets His approval, is such that how powerfully positive our life will be. Have you ever noticed as you perhaps saunter into a bookstore, perhaps in Cookville, and you see book after book in the self-help section on positive thinking? I'd submit there's no book in the world that's a better textbook on positive thinking than this one. It is able to transform our mind not to the confirmation of the world, Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, but rather to the transformation of what renews the mind and body according to what's revealed from the God of heaven. This is the best self-help book ever written. In terms of the Word of God, think on that then which is of good report, that which is, again, commendable, that which is worthy of praise. One of the possibilities, or at least one of the applications of this last part might well be this. How do you and I know what is of good report? God has blessed each of us with a trainable conscience, a conscience that in fact, if properly trained and schooled, is such that it will allow us to know when things are of right accord and when there's a difficulty or problem. Think with me, if you would, about the person whom you know that is of the highest integrity and the highest character that you can think of. Suppose that person was able to read your thoughts. Would you feel comfortable if that person followed you everywhere for a day or for a week and all the time was able to read what you were thinking about? I'd submit that's one of the best tests as to whether or not what you and I think about is of good report. Would you and I feel ashamed to have them with us all the time? Or would we be comfortable? Would we not have a blush on our face? And would we feel a degree of ease about them? Or would we be happy when they're gone? That perhaps says a lot about what we think about. If they could read our mind and you and I were uncomfortable, does that not say that we're thinking about things that are not of good report? That we're thinking about things that have a degree of unwholesomeness about them? After all, Jesus can read our thoughts. John 2 verse 25 said he needed not to be told what was in man, for he knew what was in man. You see, Jesus is always with us. He knows what I'm thinking about. He knows what you're thinking about. He knows whether it's of good report, and he knows if it's not. In Psalm 139, we read there that God, no matter where we go, he's already there. 
Is that not a sobering reflection upon what we should think about? As we come to near the closing element of our lesson tonight, think on these things. Could we not summarize in ways perhaps like this? We have been admonished to think on things that are true and honest and just and pure and lovely and of good report. But notice the closing statements of the verse say, If there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. Those two words, if, mean that these matters do have a degree of condition about them. But might we notice briefly what the condition is, if there's any virtue. That word virtue means moral excellence. Do you and I have a desire for moral excellence? We had better. For if we don't, according to 2 Peter 1, verses 5 and following, we shall be lost. Those that seek that moral excellence, and the words translated virtue, are those that will inherit heaven. We should have moral excellence, and we should desire it more and more each day. Paul says if that's our desire, we should think on these things. He also says if there's any virtue and if there's any praise. Is there any approval in my life and yours? Is there any desire to stand approved? Then we should think on these things. Tonight, what do you think on and what do I think on? Day by day, the Word of God touches not only that which we do and that which we say, but even as we've seen tonight, that which we think. Is my mind tuned to the channel of God and thus dwells upon what's wholesome, true, noble, just, righteous, and honest? Or far too often are things to be found therein that really have no place there. They, in fact, cloud the mind and cause it to be impure. This evening, as we each analyze the course of our mind and what it is that we think about, we need to allow Jesus ever more work in our mind in the year 2008 to allow ourselves to mature in the faith by thinking on these things. And if we do so, we will be a powerful instrument in the hands of the God of heaven. Are you a Christian then this evening? Let Jesus begin the transformation of your mind. Believe in Him. Repent of your sins. Confess His sweet name as the Son of God. And be immersed, baptized for the forgiveness of sins. If you have done that, but you have not made faithful and true effort to think on these things, perhaps you'd like to have the prayers of brethren round about you that you might be stronger and that the next year might for you be a great maturing effort as you seek to be far greater to what God would have you to be. This evening, if we could be of assistance in either of those ways, will you not come even now and let that be known while together we stand and while we sing?